Hope you guys had a good week this last week. Uh, are having a good weekend. We've got a friend of ours, Karen Contreras, who's with us, and that's been a lot of fun ha- having Karen. And uh, Sam and Karen were with us for a season uh, in the early years of our church and were a great joy uh, for us then and still are. Uh, uh, Karen was actually in our wedding. Karen was in our wedding. And, uh, and then Sam, her husband, who's a Navy chaplain, uh, was he caught the garter belt. At, at our at our wedding, and then they were married the following uh, February, right after that. So it's good having them. So, um, so you know, this last week I was having a conversation with my mom. I was talking with my mom, and uh, my mom. Those of y'all who know my mom, and many of you do, you just know that she's really a wonderful, wonderful person. She she and my my and she and Joy are just like two peas in a pod. They are so much like each other. The way they keep house, the way they cook. Uh, they're both very supportive, very encouraging, always upbeat. Uh, I shouldn't say always upbeat, but almost always upbeat, uh, but just a lot alike. But I was talking with my mom this week, and I was, I'd been studying through Matthew chapter 18, and we've been doing a series right now on Matthew, and today we're going to do our last message. Uh, we're getting to Matthew 18 as the last message, not because it's the last chapter of the book, but because we, we went back and did some of the later chapters of Matthew before coming back to these chapters, but, but, uh, but I was talking with my mom just because I'd been studying on Matthew chapter 18, and I'd been thinking about, in fact, I'll put the word up here because this word is pretty important. I've been thinking about greatness, okay? I've been thinking about this word greatness. What does real greatness look like? And, and so I was studying through Matthew 18. I was thinking about what greatness looks like in our lives, and I was thinking about a couple different people. And, and I was sharing with my mom how I was thinking about a guy that I had always looked up to for many, many years. A very, very talented, gifted leader, uh, pastored a very, very large church, written a lot of books, spoke at a lot of conferences, stuff like that. And, and I've watched this man in, in just the last couple of years, and it's just kind of broken my heart watch him kind of crash and burn in his personal life, his spiritual life, his ministry life. And, and uh, I have seen this. Uh, many times. The older I get, uh, the more I've watched this happen in the lives of many, many men. And, and one of the things that really concerns me in, in our world today is we really think a lot about, uh, about talent and gift and skill-based leadership. Okay? So we really celebrate great people with great gifts or a lot of talent people who've mastered certain skills. And there's nothing wrong with being really good at skills and learning skills. Nothing, nothing wrong with being talented or gifted. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But what the church needs today, and I think what our world needs today, and and we need this in the White House, we need this in Congress, we need this, we need this in City Hall, we need this, we need this in the business world, we need it in our churches, we need it in our homes. What we need, really need, is character-based leadership. Character-based leadership. Leadership, great leadership that's great because the character supports it. Not as much the gifts, not as much the talents, not as much the skills, and all those, there's a place for all of that. But what's most important is character. And so I was talking with my mom, and as I was talking with her, we were talking, I was talking with her about one of her brothers. My, my mom had five older brothers. And uh, all, of, all of my 
my uncles are really, really good men. All of them very, very hardworking men. All of them very, very godly men. But one that I was thinking about more than others is my Uncle Jim. My Uncle Jim, he, he passed away about a year and a half ago. But, uh, you know, one of the men that I've always respected is my Uncle Jim. And, uh, you see, my Uncle Jim, he never pastored a really, really large church. In fact, he had to be bivocational. He had to work as a carpenter and he had to do other jobs all of his life just to make ends meet. But he was a man who was very invested in proclaiming the Word of God and sharing the gospel with people. And the people that he would focus on a lot of times were the most marginalized. And so back at a time when the civil rights movement was fairly young, and back in a time when it wasn't hip and cool to talk about racial reconciliation, he was invested in serving very, very poor black churches in eastern Arkansas, an area where there was just tremendous... um, just a lot of heartache and pain, racial um, conflict. And, and, uh, and he was doing this at a time when a lot of the respected white Christian leaders really kind of looked down on that kind of a thing, and, uh, which to me breaks my heart. But he would focus on serving their serving the poor. He would focus on on setting up churches on Sunday mornings at truck stops. So he would set up church at a truck stop for truck drivers who are away from their homes, away from their families, away from uh, their churches, and he would lead the people in worship. And he, would, and he was not a great singer. Uh, but he would, there's a reason why Matt leads us in worship and, and I preach, okay? But he would lead uh, those men and women, he would lead them and worship, and he would lead them into the scriptures, and he would proclaim to them the gospel. And he would, would go into assisted living homes for the aging, and he would lead church uh, for the aging, and people who were a little bit maybe forgotten, sometimes by their family uh, and then also by others. And then he would go into to jails. Uh, And he would lead church, he would lead church for the incarcerated. And to be honest with you, when I look at and read through the Gospels, I feel like a lot of what my Uncle Jim did looks a lot like what Jesus did. Jesus did not cater to the religious establishment. He did not cater to the rich. He did not cater to the powerful. In fact, he would routinely call them out. But what he did do is he really loved people who were marginalized the sinners, the tax collectors, uh, the, uh, the poor, uh, the disenfranchised. And, and he loved them and he served them. And the older I get, the more the way I think about greatness has changed. Uh, and I think it's changed for the better. Well, what about you? What do you think of as greatness? And what does greatness look like for you? And today what I want us to do is I want us to look at a little bit what the scriptures talk about 
when it talks about greatness. And I want us to look at what Jesus talks about when Jesus talks about greatness. Because you see, the, the disciples of Jesus were very, very preoccupied. In fact, when you read through the book of Matthew, this comes up several different times. This comes up again and again and again. In fact, it comes up in chapter 18, but it comes up again in chapter 19. And it's come up earlier in the book of Matthew as well. But the disciples of Jesus, they were always talking about what does greatness look like and who is the greatest? By the way, you know, it's not Muhammad Ali. Uh, but it's, it's, it's someone else, okay? And what the Bible tells us, if you have your Bible, please open it up. If you like to use your phone for your Bible, I, I routinely read the scriptures off my iPhone. So pull out your phone. You, you need to have a Bible in front of you in some way. And today's slideshow is going to be a little bit different uh, because I couldn't get it. Uh, there's something wrong with my computer, I think. Anyway, uh, so we're, we're going to do this a little bit differently today. But I want you to have the scriptures in front of you in some way or another. And, and what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, it says this. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I always laugh when I think about this question. Isn't the answer kind of obvious? Isn't it the king who's the greatest? But for some reason, they keep asking this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The Bible tells us, and according to Mark, according to Mark, this conversation happens in Capernaum, which happened to be uh, the home of, of, of Matthew. It happened, or excuse me, happened to be the home of, of Peter and Andrew, James and John. And, and what the Bible tells us in verse 2, it says, He called a little child to him. And some people believe that this may have taken place in the home uh, of Peter. And that the child may have been Peter's child. I don't know. But what I want you to see here is not just the concept of a child. I want you to see here one of our children. A child here at Solana Valley Church. Because I believe if, if, if Jesus were here this morning, he would have one of our little children up here, up here with him. And he calls the little child to him. And he places the child among them. And he says this, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change. By the way, one of the things I've noticed about churches is a lot of times churches are allergic to change. You change what version of the Bible you use. You change what hymnal you use. You change what kind of music you use. You change something and people get really upset. By the way, if you change the way the chairs are set up. I've actually heard people complain about that. It's amazing. People are allergic to change. By the way, you cannot grow. You cannot grow. You cannot grow if you will not change. And so what Jesus says, he says this, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never, never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does Jesus have your attention? Right now, you really want to give Jesus your full attention. Because what's at stake here is your soul. See, what Jesus says, he says, unless you change and become like little children, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child. Now, folks, in the ancient world, children were not someone to look up to. In the ancient world, children were someone, they were someone to look after, not to look up to. And what Jesus says, he says, um, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone, anyone causes one of these little ones, meaning a child, or meaning someone who's humbled himself like a child, it, who, if anyone causes one of these little, little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, a millstone was a very, very large stone that was used for grinding grain uh, and making bread. And, uh, and what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying you should literally go drown yourself in the sea, okay? He's not literally saying that. The other day, uh, Jim Winchell and I, we went out for lunch, and, and Jim made the comment when he walked in. He said, I'm so hungry. He said, I'm as hungry as a bear. Now, he's not saying he's literally as hungry as a bear. I don't have to run in fear that he's going to eat me, you know. He's, he's not going to start devouring raw salmon, you know. Uh, but what he's saying is something very, very literal, that he's really, really hungry. Or if I say I'm so hungry I could eat a bear, I'm not saying that I could literally eat a bear or that Jill needs to run and hide. But what I'm saying is I'm really, really hungry. And, and what Jesus is saying is, hey, man, it is really not cool to cause one of these little ones, either a child or someone who humbles himself like a child, to believe in me, to cause them to stumble. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Again, he's speaking metaphorically here. He's not wanting you to go out and cut off your hands and feet. All right? Um, but he's saying, hey, you need, to, you need to think seriously about this. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, it's, it, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands, two feet, be thrown into the, the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Sorry about that. Um, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Have you ever heard someone say children are to be seen, not heard? We will not have that attitude in this church. Okay? We're not going to have that attitude here. We're going to love children. We're going to seize the future today. And we're going to invest in our children. They are not someone to be tolerated. They are people to be loved. Uh, 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? Jesus asked. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go after the one that wandered off? And if he finds, finds it, Truly, I tell you, he's happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Uh, folks, there are a couple of different times that Jesus uses this, this analogy. And sometimes he uses this analogy evangelistically about going out and seeking those who are lost. Here, Jesus is talking about these little ones of his who believe in him. He's using it in a pastoral sense. It's that person that you've been sitting next to or sitting around in church week after week after week, and suddenly you notice they're missing. He's talking about going after that person in a loving and gracious way and bringing them back into the fold. Verse 14, In the same way, your heavenly Father is not willing that any of these little ones, those who believe in him, should perish. Verse 15, If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a a pagan or a tax collector. It's a little bit of an awkward text, and we're going to get to this. We're going to look at this a lot more closely in about five weeks. Uh, Next week, we're going to kick off a brand-new series on 1 Corinthians. And uh, five weeks from now, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there was an issue, a very, very difficult, awkward issue of church discipline that needed to be taken by the church in Corinth, and they had not done it. And Paul is speaking to him about it. We're going to develop this a little bit more that week. Um, verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father uh, in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, there's a lot in the text. There really is. And I've already outlined about five different messages for a future series. I'm not going to try to preach all five of them to you today, although I have done that before. Um, In Matthew 18, the disciples of Jesus are concerned with what? They're concerned with greatness. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe they were wondering if maybe it was going to be Peter. Maybe James or John. All three of them had been present. Remember the previous chapter last week, chapter or two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John were present with Jesus. Maybe they were wondering if it was going to be one of them. But what's in their mind and what their focus is on is their focus is on this right here. Their focus is on, is on greatness. I don't know how well you can see that. I'm sure that writing it twice makes it easier or not. Okay? But, but their focus, their concern is about greatness But what Jesus is focused on is he's focused on, and what he says is that greatness looks like a little child. 
not being childish, but being childlike. That the greatness looks like humility. The greatness looks like receiving those who've humbled themselves like little children. The greatness looks <coughs> excuse me. Greatness looks like being careful not to create temptation for others by being a stumbling block. The greatness looks like <coughs> excuse me diligently removing anything and everything from our own lives that distract us from following Jesus. The greatness looks like going after those who've gone astray from Jesus and his church. And the greatness looks like seeking to restore, not humiliate. To restore anyone who falls away from Jesus by falling into sin. That that's what real greatness looks like. Today I want us to kind of focus in on some of these verses, not all of them. And I want to share with you a couple of thoughts. And the first one is this, is when we're talking about greatness, is that there are a couple of things that we want to do. Okay? A couple of things. And, and the first thing is simply this. That, that number one, uh, we uh, don't, don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't be someone who trips people up spiritually. Don't be a stumbling block. Block. Uh, be a help. Now, where do I see that in the text? Don't be a stumbling block. Be a help. Uh, first of all, when we look at, when we think about, about the, uh, the, don't be a stumbling block. In verse 6, uh, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, meaning possibly a child or someone who's humbled himself like a little child, He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. In this text, that Jesus is is concerned with how our lives influence the lives of other people. Have you ever heard the the old saying, the Hippocratic Oath, uh, uh, do no harm? You know that? You know that? Do no harm? That, that, that the first order of business for you and me as a follower of Jesus is to do no harm. Do no harm. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block for others by the things you say. Putting people down. Uh, putting people down, uh, uh, you know, by your words. Don't be a stumbling block by the things that you do. Uh, and, and for a moment, I want to talk about, don't be a stumbling block, and I want to talk about what this means and what it doesn't mean, all right? So when I was a kid, I grew up in a part of the country where I was exposed to a lot of very, very traditional church cultures. And there were certain things that were considered to be a sin. So, for example, uh, some of those things were like dancing. Dancing. If you were called dancing, you were going to hell, Okay? Dancing. That's a sin. Uh, listening to rock and roll. Listening to rock and roll. Now, I will tell you, there's some rock and roll songs you probably shouldn't listen to. But I love the Eagles. And there's a lot of really good songs they sing, too. Uh, that, that listening to rock and roll. That, that, um, for women, and this was you know, maybe foreign to you, but when I was a kid, for women, uh, that there were some church traditions that said it was a sin to wear makeup or to wear pants, 
concerning wearing makeup, there's a Bible verse that says if the barn needs painting, paint it. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not really in the Bible. It's not really in the Bible. But neither, neither does the Bible say, thou shalt not wear makeup. Okay? Um, that that um, going to movies, uh, a lot of the church traditions that I grew up around as a kid uh, felt like going to movies was a sin. And folks, I'll tell you, there are some movies you really shouldn't go see. You know, it's, it's really funny. I heard someone say one time is, is that there was a time where uh, uh, Christians weren't going to watch mo- movies that they should have been going to watch. And today they're going to watch movies they really shouldn't be going to watch. And, and there are certain movies you really don't need. But listen, later today, uh, I'm, my wife, uh, Karen, our kids, we're, we're going to go to the movies. If that causes you to stumble, I'm so sorry because we're going to go watch. Uh, we're going to go watch Overcomer, uh, the Kinder Brothers' latest movie. All right, it's about cross country and identity and stuff like that. So we're going to go watch that because uh, we got a lot of runners in our family. Uh, that when I was a kid, some of the church traditions I grew up around said it was a sin to play cards. It was a sin to play cards. And um, and if you go all the way back to the time of a guy named D.L. Moody, anybody ever? Here, D.L. Moody, or maybe you've heard of the, the Moody Bible Institute or Moody Press, uh, that D.L. Moody believed it was a sin to read the newspaper on Sundays. That's right. It was a sin to read. I, I, I read uh, where he had said this, that it was a sin to read the newspaper on Sundays, and he is absolutely right. That's the reason I refuse to read the newspaper on Sundays. Just kidding. I don't read it because it, it, it just I get down when I read it. I'm like, I, I don't need this. Uh, but, but, so what, you know, and, and there's some people who are like, wow, you know, you probably shouldn't dance with your wife because it might make someone else sin. I'm like, man, it is okay to dance with your wife. Do it. You know, that, that some people might say, well, you shouldn't play cards with your kids because someone else might see it and it might not cause them to stumble. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. That's not what it means to be, to, to not be a stumbling block doesn't mean that you take someone else's legalism and you buy into it to keep from causing offense to them. That's, that's called having really poor boundaries. It's about taking responsibility and ownership of someone else's junk in their life as if somehow if you do something like dancing with your wife or playing cards, you cause another person to sin. That's not what we're talking about. When you read in the Bible about people who are stumbling blocks, usually you read things like, if you go back to the book of Exodus, and you read about this guy named Aaron. You remember who Aaron was in the book of Exodus? He was the, he was the, the brother of Moses. And you read about how Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law from God. And while he was up on the mountain, the people were, they were really uh, aggravated that Moses had left them, and he wasn't taking care of them. And so they began to demand of Aaron, we want a God. And what did Aaron do? He complied. He gave the people what they wanted. By the way, it's one of the worst things you can do if you're in spiritual leadership sometimes, is to give people what they want. Because a lot of times people are wanting something other than Jesus. Sometimes people are wanting something other than what the Scriptures are telling us. And what we've got to do is we've got to give people Jesus. And we've got to give people Scripture. And, 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 uh, but what Aaron did is he gave them what they asked for, a God. 
a God that they could see, a God that they could touch. And they pulled together the gold, they melted the gold down, and they created a golden image of a calf. And Aaron said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's what it looks like to be a stumbling block. What does it look like to be a stumbling block in the Scriptures? It looks like false prophets who preach a false gospel. It looks like false teachers who teach false doctrine. It looks like the teaching of the Pharisees that Jesus warned his disciples about, calling it the leaven of the Pharisees. It's what Paul talks about with Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. When Paul warns Timothy about false teachers with seductive personalities. For among them, Paul says, are those who enter into households and captivate weak or vulnerable women weighed down with their sins, led on by various impulses. Now, real quick here, Paul's not calling women weak. But he does say there are some women who were in Ephesus, and if you know anything about the history of the city and some of the practices and what happened, uh, the victimization that went on and things like that, that sometimes made people very, very vulnerable. Are you following me here? We're talking about that taking advantage of people who are vulnerable. By the way, and it's not just women who are vulnerable. Sometimes it's men. And there are some people who are very, very seductive in their personalities. And they are able to create very, very large followings. And they write books that get published. And sometimes they even pastor large churches. And sometimes they're even invited to speak at at conferences and things like that. And, 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 folks, we need something better. We need something better. And when we're talking about stumbling blocks, we're talking about people who prey upon people. That's what we're talking about. Are you with me here? Okay, okay. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to be stumbling blocks for people. So what is it that God wants to do instead? And what God wants to do instead, I really think, is he wants us to be a help. And, you're, you, you know, right now you should be asking this question, okay, Gary, where on earth do you see that in the text? Because if what I'm talking about can't be tied back to the text, then I'm I'm missing something, all right? So where do we see this? And and again, this is why I want you to have your Bible in front of you, either on your smartphone or or a written copy of the Scriptures. But I want you to have your Bible in front of you. And and what what, uh, Jesus says to his disciples is that the greatness looks like it looks like going after the one who wanders away from Jesus in this church. It looks like going after that person who begins to wander away. So if you see someone wandering away from Jesus and his church, go after him. Where do we see that? Verse 12, what do you think, Jesus says, if a man owns a hundred sheep, one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go after the one that wandered off? Now, is Jesus concerned about sheep here? No. He's concerned about people. He's concerned about the little ones. He's concerned about the little ones. Verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Implication. God is concerned about the little ones, and and we should be too. That we should go after 
uh, th- those who wander away from the church, who wander away from Jesus. And, and I know someone will say, well, isn't that the pastor's job? Isn't that the pastor's job? Well, yes, of course it's the pastor's job. It is. It's my job. It's Matt's job. It's Carolyn's job. It's Joy's job. It's, it's, it's the job of our elders. It's the job of you. It's the job of you. It's the job of each one of us. If you are, you go to the beach for a day, uh, well, not here, okay, not here. Because you, when you go to the beach here, you don't, you don't go swimming, all right? You have a picnic on the beach, and you watch crazy people who go out in the water, okay? Uh, but uh, on the East Coast, when you go to the beach, you go to swim. You go to swim, and when you go to swim, and, and you're out there in the water, and you see a little child begin to kind of step out, and suddenly... He steps where his feet are no longer touching the bottom. What do you do? Oh, you step back and say, gee, I wonder if that lifeguard is going to do his job. I work hard all week long. I shouldn't have to come here and do his job too. Right? Isn't that what you do? No, no, no. No, you, you reach out and you pull that child back in to where he can get his feet back on solid ground. Isn't that what you do? See, by the time by the time the lifeguard this is kind of amusing. Okay, not this part. By the time the lifeguard sees that child, it could be too late. Okay? One time I was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I spent the summer there. Uh, I was in Myrtle and a buddy of mine was a lifeguard on the beach there. And we're going along and all these people are out in the water and it's kind of crazy and everybody's having fun, a lot of noise, big ruckus. And all of a sudden, I can see a triangular fin cutting through the water between people. And then I see his back dorsal fin come up, too. Now, when you see two fins like that, whatever the distance is between those two fins tells you how large that shark is. Now, if it's a rounded fin, you know it's a dolphin. But if it's a triangular fin, you know that's not a dolphin. And so I'm looking out there. So I just decided to wait to see how long it took for the lifeguard to see it. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But, but I'm, I'm watching this shark. It felt like a Jaws baby. I'm watching this shark. And, and I, I turned to my buddy. I said, is that a shark? And he, it was so funny because he, he was telling me this story. And all of a sudden his eyes got like huge. And he, he starts whistling on his whistle, and he's yelling, he's running down to the water, get out of the water, there's a shark, there's a shark. And everybody was running out of the water, and it was kind of like that scene in Jaws where there were a couple of kids who were pretending to be sharks, but they weren't. And it was exactly like that. All these people were running. Of course, it wasn't that long after the movie had been made that this had happened. But, but what you do, what you do is when you see someone and you see danger, what do you do? You reach out, you help them. You don't just let them wander away into danger. And folks, that's what it's like for you and me. That the person sitting next to you is your brother, is your sister. The person in front of you, the person behind you is your brother, is your sister. You don't wait to see if someone else will notice that they're gone. You go after them. You reach out to them. Why? Because that's what love would do. Because that's what Jesus does. And that's what he wants us to do. 
See, he doesn't want us just to not be a stumbling block. He wants us to be a help. He wants us to be a help. How does he want us to be a help? Not just by, not just by going uh, after the wandering sheep. Or maybe, yeah, it is kind of like going after the wandering sheep. But it's like a person who's wandering away from Jesus but wandering into sin. Wandering away from Jesus, how? By wandering into sin. And so what Jesus says, if you see your brother or your sister, uh, if your brother or your sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. Okay? So you go to this person, and, and, and how do you do this? And once again, this is where we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so if you're reading through Matthew, which you should be, you know, you know that Matthew 18 comes after Matthew 7. Isn't that right? Doesn't Matthew 18 come after Matthew 7? Yeah. No, Matthew 18 comes after Matthew 7 and 17. It comes after 8 and 9. But let's just establish it comes after 7, all right? Because that's where I want to go. Is Matthew 7? What does Jesus say in Matthew 7? Oh. Let's see. Well, he says a few things some stuff about prayer, but one of the things he says is this. He says, um, he says, um, if your brother has a splinter in his own eye, before you go to your brother about the splinter in his eye, make sure you're taking care of the telephone pole in your own eye. Okay? Yeah. What you need to do is before you go to someone else about their business, you better be looking to yourself about your own business. By the way, sometimes what we think is a problem to the other person oftentimes is not a problem to the other person. It's a problem in us, and that's what Jesus is trying to say. Make sure you're taking care of your stuff before you get into someone else's stuff. But after you've examined your own heart, your own life, and it's obvious that this brother this sister is, is doing something that's destructive, destructive for him, destructive for her, destructive for his wife, his children, her husband, her children, if someone is entering into destructive behavior that's affecting other people, you don't nudge the pastor. You go to the person just between the two of you because you are the one who's seeing it. You go to him, you go to her just between the two of you. And you say, you, you go to him. Stan, can I use you? Okay. So it's like I go to Stan, and I say, Stan, I love you, bro. I do. I'm really concerned about something. And I, I, there's something I've seen, and, and, and I just uh, I, I want to, to know, you know, is there anything I can do to help you? Now, let's pretend for a moment that Stan says, you know, you're not the boss of me. Quit judging me. Okay? Then what does Jesus say? Well, if he, you know, if he listens to you, you'll blind your brother. But if he says, you're not the judge of me, <laughs> then what you do is you go with one or two others also. These one or two others also. These are people who are very dear friends, who love and care about Stan. Now, the reason you go with one or two others is because sometimes the problem really isn't Stan. Sometimes the problem is Gary. And the one or two others get to say into Gary's life, Gary, I think this might be a problem for you. I've had friends who've done that with me. That's a good thing. We need that. We need people who speak into our lives to help us be humble. 
See, because when we go to a brother, when we go to a sister that we're concerned about, and we're concerned about how their life and their choices may be damaging themselves, may be damaging other people, we have to go very, very humbly, and we have to go very, very gently. And then finally, what Jesus says, if he won't listen to the two of you or the three of you, then you bring it before the church. Now, let's be real quick and real clear to clarify this. This doesn't mean next Sunday is open mic day, and you come up and say, Gary, can you step aside? I need to talk to you guys about something. I went to this brother of mine, Matt, and I told him what a filthy, rotten sinner he was, and guess what? He told me to quit judging. And so, you know, so Carolyn and Steve, I'll leave you out of it, Katie, sorry. <laughs> Carolyn and Steve went with me, and we all three told him, you're a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner. You're going to hell. And didn't listen to, to us either. And, uh, and so what we want to do today is we want to shame him all the way out of the building, all right? That's really not what Jesus is talking about. Real, real, filthy, rotten Skinner. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> Leonard Skinner. Anyway, um, so, so what, what this text is talking about is not creating a culture of shame. And a lot of churches have understood this in that way, which to me is, is a complete misunderstanding of Jesus. Uh, there is a time when there are some kinds of sin that need to be dealt with in a public way. And that's what we're going to see when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't want to try to create a list today. But there are a lot of things that need to be dealt with privately. But there are some things, fewer things, that have to be dealt with publicly. For example, where someone is creating um, a major disruption in the church family, you have to deal with it publicly. Uh, If you have someone who's teaching false doctrine and trying to birth a church out of a church, quote-unquote, birth a church out of a church, where it's creating a church split. And you're doing it in the name of Jesus. By the way, it's really interesting to me when people will create a church split in the name of Jesus. When what does Jesus do in, in John chapter uh, 17? He prays for the unity of the church. And what does Paul com- command us in Ephesians chapter 4? That we are one church. One God, one Father, one Son, one Spirit, one faith. It's interesting to me is when people will split a church in the name of Jesus. Uh, It just drives me crazy. Now, there are times where there's false teaching, and you've got to confront that. But that's the kind of thing you confront in the church. You you have to confront that if there's false teaching. If If I am preaching a false gospel, Matt has an obligation to confront me with that. Our elder team, Steve has an obligation. John has an obligation. Eric has an obligation. Eric will just hit the mute button. (laughs) Collectively, you need to hit the mute button. And if I won't repent, then you have to bring it before the church. You have to say, you know, we we don't like doing this. It's really hard for us to do this, but but we've got to address it publicly because it's happening publicly. And it's creating major fallout in our church. That's what I'm talking about. Does that make sense? And I think that's what Jesus is addressing in this text. I went on and on. Bottom line, you know what? I had another point. I'm not going to get there. Just, you know, 
what does greatness look like in a church? It looks like humbling yourself like a little child. It looks like receiving children. It looks like receiving people who humble themselves like little children. It looks like going after It looks like not being a stumbling block. It looks like helping. It looks like going after people who are wandering away from Jesus and wandering away from his church. It looks like restoring people who have fallen into sin and are falling away from Jesus. That's what it looks like. Let's pray. God, today, um, first of all, we want to we just want to praise you. We want to thank you because you are a good God, uh, Lord Jesus. We want to praise you. We want to thank you because you are the good shepherd. You are the one who lays down his life for the sheep. You are the one who goes after the one. God, help us. Help us to humble ourselves like little children. Help us to, instead of of, of jockeying for position and status and recognition, help us to humble ourselves like little children and believe in you. Help us, God, to, to not be a stumbling block for others. Instead, to go after those who are wandering away from the church and wandering away from Jesus. And help us, God, to have the courage and the humility and the grace and the wisdom to go after those who have fallen into sin and fallen away from Jesus, not to humiliate them, but to seek to restore them. And help us to do this in a really healthy way, God, for the honor and the glory of your name. Amen.